Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. From January through April of 2014, Lighthouse was proud to present The Big Read, a multi-arts celebration of literature. We hosted discussions, classes, contests, and get-togethers to explore the themes of community, family, and isolation, all based on Marilyn Robinson's Penn Hemingway award-winning novel, Housekeeping. The Big Read kicked off on January 24th at the McNichols Building in Civic Center. Guests enjoyed a dramatic reading of excerpts from Housekeeping by Stories on Stage, received copies of the novel, signed up for book discussions and writing workshops, and experienced the art exhibit featured at McNichols. Speakers included Lighthouse Executive Director Michael Henry and Governor Hickenlooper's Deputy Chief of Staff, Jamie Van Leeuwen. Thanks for coming tonight to the Big Read kickoff party. My name is Mike Henry. I am the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Just really quickly, the Big Read is a national program to engage communities in reading one single book, obviously. And I think this year they have um, 80 different communities that are going to be reading books this year. So why Big Read and why housekeeping? I'll try and keep this brief. I only have 37 pages of this, but I'll, I'll just I'll skim it. Just kidding. So the Big Read, obviously, is a celebration of literature. In specific, it's a celebration of one amazing book, Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. That was Marilyn's first novel, and it is on many lists of the top 100 books of the century. It's a fantastic book. If you've read it, if you haven't read it, you're going to love it, and you won't forget it. You're going to find yourself thinking about scenes from the book weeks, months, days, years after you read it. It's just a fantastic book. It's also a book that we use a lot in our workshops when we're teaching. It's one of the, probably one of the more readily available and favorite books of many of our faculty. So they always say, well, do it like she did it, you know, write like she did, which is an easy to say, hard to do. And just to give you a sense of what other people have said, I have really a quick quote from the New York Times. Marilyn Robinson has written a first novel that one reads as slowly as poetry and for the same reason. The language is so precise, so distilled, so beautiful that one doesn't want to miss any pleasure it might yield up to patience. Um, The idea here is really to sort of have the entire community to talk about the book. And I think the reason why you want them to talk about the book or the reason why we want everybody to talk about this book in particular is because it's such a rich book. Um, There's so much going on. And I think the idea of reading a book as a community deepens our understanding of one another as a culture. And so I think, this isn't just me saying this or thinking this, there's lots of people who think this, Um, literature makes us better citizens and makes us more intelligent, empathetic, and thoughtful as a society and a culture. And I think that's important, don't you? I'm, I'm preaching in the converted, yeah. And I often say this when I go to events, and, you know, it's like, reading is important, reading, in my, reading makes us better people. And then sometimes I think, really, you know, I just, I'm on the soapbox and I'm talking too much. But I found a couple of quotes. I, looked, I was looking at a book the other day. It's on moral fiction by John Gardner, and he has this to say. You think your pain and your heart, heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world. Oh, I'm sorry, this is James Baldwin. This is a different quote. You think your pain and heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. And here's what um, 
John Gardner has to say about that. If I can find it, I'm losing my notes. Ah, art asserts and reasserts those values which hold off dissolution, struggling to keep the mind intact and preserve the city. Art rediscovers generation by generation what is necessary to humanness. Art makes us human. Writing makes us human. Literature makes us human. Do you agree? Yes, okay. I, I am definitely preaching to the converted. So, it's my sincere pleasure to introduce our next guests, our performers. Stories on Stage, they are celebrating their 13th season, and they bring great literature to life by presenting acclaimed actors and dramatic readings of short works by exceptional authors. The company's work has been described as theater of the mind, both innovative and compelling. As you may have already guessed, tonight's reading is going to be from Housekeeping, and I'd I'd like to introduce you to Anthony Powell, the director of Stories on Stage. Thank you, Michael and Andrea and all the gang at Lighthouse so much for having us. It's such a privilege to be involved in this. And uh, with Stories on Stage, you know, I have to read... My, my older sister goes, so they pay you to read short stories. What a rough life. You must lead. It's a wonderful job. But I don't get to read novels very much, and, and, and I feel guilty when I do. I look over my shoulder, and I got to read Housekeeping, and it was work, and yet it was a pleasure. And I, I took it down so quickly. What a beautiful, beautiful book. But uh, we're so happy to be here for this first event of The Big Read, and it's now my great pleasure to introduce Rachel Fowler, who has appeared in leading roles on just about every stage in the Denver Boulder area, including the Denver Center Theater Company, Curious Theater Company, the Arvada Center, the Boulder Ensemble Theater, the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, Boulder's local theater company, where she played the role of Alyssa Broussard in their world premiere production of Elijah, and where she also serves as associate producer. Rachel's acted in films at regional theaters across the country and in New York, acting, of course, but also producing two off-Broadway shows. Last year, Rachel received the 2012 Culture West Best Season as an Actress Award and will be appearing in Kieran Berry's Tomorrow in the Battle at the Grant Humphreys Mansion beginning on February 23rd. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Fowler. Housekeeping by Marilyn Robinson. When my mother, Helen, finally returned to her hometown of Fingerbone, Washington, a total of seven and a half years had passed since the time she left. It was on a Sunday morning when she knew her mother would not be at home, and she stayed only long enough to settle my sister Lucille and me on the bench in the screen porch with a box of graham crackers to prevent conflict and restlessness. Perhaps from a sense of delicacy, my grandmother never asked us anything about our life with our mother. Perhaps she was not curious. Perhaps she was so affronted by Helen's secretive behavior that even now she refused to take notice of it. Perhaps she did not wish to learn by indirection what Helen did not wish to tell her. If she had asked me, I could have told her that we lived in two rooms at the top of a tall gray building so that all the windows, there were five altogether, and a window with five rows of small panes, overlooked a narrow white porch, the highest flight of a great scaffolding of white steps and porches, fixed and intricate as the flow of frozen eke of water from the side of a cliff, 
grainy, gray-white like dried salt. From this porch, we looked down on broad tar paper roofs, eave to eave, spread like somber tents over hordes of goods crated up, and over tomatoes and turnips and chickens, and over crabs and salmons, and over a dance floor with a jukebox where someone began playing Sparrow in the Treetop and Goodnight Irene before breakfast. But all of this, from our vantage, we saw only the tented top. Gulls sat in rows on our porch railing and peered for scavenge. Since all the windows were in a line, our rooms were as light as the day was near the door and became darker as one went further in. Helen put lengths of clotheslines through our belts and fastened them to the doorknob, an arrangement that nerved us to look over the side of the porch even when the wind was strong. Bernice, who lived below us, was our only visitor. She had lavender lips and orange hair and arched eyebrows, each drawn in a single brown line, a contest between practice and palsy, which sometimes ended at her ear. She was an old woman, but she managed to look like a young woman with a ravaging disease. She stood any number of hours in our doorway, her long back arched and her arms folded over her spherical belly, telling scandalous stories in a voice hushed in deference to the fact that Lucille and I should not be hearing them. Through all these tales, her eyes were wide with amazement recalled, and now and then she would laugh and prod my mother's arms with her lavender claws. Helen leaned in the doorway, smiled at the floor, and twined her hair. My mother was selling cosmetics in a drugstore, and Bernice looked after us when she was at work, though Bernice herself worked all night as a cashier in a truck stop. She looked after us by trying to sleep lightly enough to be awakened by the first sounds of fistfights, of the destruction of furniture, of the throes of household poisoning. This scheme worked, though sometimes Bernice would wake up in the grip of some nameless alarm, run up the stairs in her nightgown and eyebrowless, and drub our windows with her hands when we were sitting quietly at supper with our mother. These disruptions of her sleep were not less resented because they were self-generated, but she loved us for our mother's sake. Bernice took a week off from work so she could lend us her car for a visit to Fingerbone. When she learned from Helen that her mother was living, she began to urge her to go home for a while, and Helen, to her great satisfaction, was finally persuaded. It proved to be a fateful journey. Helen took us through the mountains and across the desert and into the mountains again, and at last to the lake and over the bridge into town, left at the light onto Sycamore Street and straight for six blocks. She put our suitcases in the screened porch, which was populated by a cat and a matronly washing machine, and told us to wait quietly. Then she went back to the car and drove north almost to Tyler, where she sailed in Bernice's Ford from the top of a cliff named Whiskey Rock into the blackest depth of the lake. 
They searched for her. Word was sent out a hundred miles in every direction to watch for a young woman in a car, which I said was blue and Lucille said was green. Some boys who had been fishing and knew nothing about the search had come across her sitting cross-legged on the roof of the car, which had bogged down in the meadow between the road and the cliff. They said she was gazing at the lake and eating wild strawberries, which were prodigiously large and abundant that year. She asked them very pleasantly to help her push her car out of the mud, and they went so far as to put their blankets and coats under the wheels to facilitate her rescue. When they got the Ford back to the road, she thanked them, gave them her purse, rolled down the rear windows and started the car, turned the wheel as far to the right as it would go, and roared, swerving and sliding across the meadow until she sailed off the edge of the cliff. My grandmother spent a number of days in her bedroom. She had an armchair and a footstool from the parlor placed by the window that looked into the orchard, and she sat there. Food was brought to her there. She was not inclined to move. She could hear, if not the particular words and conversations, at least the voices of people in the kitchen, the gentle and formal society of friends and mourners that had established itself in her house to look after things. Her friends were very old and fond of white cake and pinochle. In twos and threes, they would volunteer to look after us while the others played cards at the breakfast table. We would be walked around by nervous, peremptory old men who would show us Spanish coins and watches and miniature jackknives with numerous blades designed to be serviceable in any extremity in order to keep us near them and out of the path of possible traffic. A tiny old lady named Eddie, whose flesh was the color of toadstools and whose memory was so eroded as to make her incapable of bidding, and who sat smiling by herself in the porch, took me by the hand once and told me that in San Francisco, before the fire, she had lived near a cathedral, and in the house opposite lived a Catholic lady who had kept a huge parrot on her balcony. When the bells rang, the lady would come out with a shawl over her head, and she would pray, and the parrot would pray with her. The woman's voice and the parrot's voice on and on between clamor and clangor. After a while, the woman fell ill, or at least stopped coming out on her balcony, but the parrot was still there, and it whistled and prayed and flirted its tail whenever the bells rang. The fire took the church and its bells, and no doubt the parrot too, and quite possibly the Catholic lady. Eddie waved it all away with her hand and pretended to sleep. For five years, my grandmother cared for us very well. She cared for us like someone reliving a long day in a dream. Though she seemed abstracted, I think that, like one dreaming, she felt more than the urgency of present business. Her attention heightened and at the same time baffled by an awareness that this present had passed already and had had its consequence. Indeed, it must have seemed to her that she had returned to relive this day because it was here that something had been lost or forgotten. So when she seemed distracted or absent-minded, it was, in fact, I think, that she was aware of too many things, having no principle for selecting the more from the less important, and that her awareness could never be diminished 
since it was among the things she had thought of as familiar that this disaster had taken shape. And it must have seemed, too, that she had only the frailest and most inappropriate tools for most urgent uses. Once, she told us, she dreamed that she had seen a baby fall from an airplane and had tried to catch it in her apron. And once, she had tried to fish a baby out of a well with a tea strainer. Lucille and me, she tended with scrupulous care and little confidence, as if her offerings of dimes and chocolate chip cookies might keep us, our spirits, here in her kitchen, though she knew they might not. Her mother, she told us, knew a woman who, when she looked out of her window at night, often saw the ghosts of children crying by the road. These children, who were sky-black and stark naked and who danced with the cold and wiped their tears with the backs of their hands and the heels of their hands, furious with hunger, consumed much of the woman's substance and most of her thoughts. She put out soup, which the dogs ate, and blankets, which in the morning were dewy and undisturbed. The children sucked their fingers and hugged their sides as before, But she thought she might have pleased them in some way because they grew more numerous and came more often. When her sister mentioned that people thought it was strange to put supper out every night for the dogs to eat, she replied quite sensibly that anyone who saw those poor children would do exactly the same thing. Sometimes it seemed to me my grandmother saw our black souls dancing in the moonless cold and offered us deep-dish apple pie as a gesture of well-meaning and despair. And she was old. My grandmother was not a woman given to excesses of any kind, and so her aging, as it became advanced, was rather astonishing. True, she was straight and brisk and bright when most of her friends had bobbling heads or blurred speech or had sunk into wheelchairs or beds. But in the last years, she continued to settle and began to shrink. Her mouth bowed forward and her brow sloped back, and her skull shone pink and speckled with a mere haze of hair, which hovered about her head like the remembered shape of an altered thing. She looked as if the nimbus of humanity were fading away and she were turning monkey. Since my grandmother had a little income and owned her house outright, she always took some satisfaction in thinking ahead to the time when her simple private destiny would intersect with the great public processes of law and finance. That is the time of her death. All the habits and patterns and properties that had settled around her, the monthly checks from the bank, the house she had lived in since she came to it as a bride, The weedy orchard that surrounded the yard on three sides where smaller and wormier apples and apricots and plums had fallen every year of her widowhood. All these things would suddenly become liquid, capable of assuming new forms. And all of it would be Lucille's and mine. Sell the orchards she would say, looking grave and wise. But keep the house. So long as you look after your health and own the roof above your head, you're as safe as anyone can be, she would say. God willing. My grandmother loved to talk about these things. 
When she did, her eyes would roam over the goods she had accumulated unthinkingly and maintained out of habit as eagerly as if she had come to reclaim them. Her sisters-in-law, Nona and Lily, were to come and look after us when the time came. Lily and Nona were 12 and 10 years younger than my grandmother, and old as she was, she continued to think of them as rather young. They were almost destitute, and the savings in rent, not to mention the advantages of exchanging a little hotel room in the city for a rambling house surrounded by peonies and rose bushes, would be inducement enough to keep them with us until we came of age. When, after almost five years, my grandmother one winter morning eschewed wakening, my great aunts Lily and Nona were fetched from Spokane and took up housekeeping in the town of Fingerbone, just as my grandmother had wished. Their alarm was evident from the first in the nervous flutter with which they searched their bags and pockets for the little present they had bought. It was a large box of cough drops, a confection they considered both tasty and salubrious. Lily and Nona both had light blue hair and black coats with shiny black beads and intricate patterns on the lapels. Their thick bodies pitched forward from the hips, and their arms and ankles were plump. They were, though maiden ladies, of a buxomly maternal appearance that contrasted oddly with their brusque, unpracticed pats and kisses. After their bags had been brought in, they had kissed and patted us. Lily poked up the fire and Nona lowered the shades. Lily carried some of the larger bouquets onto the porch and Nona poured more water into the vases. Then they seemed at a loss. I heard Lily remark to Nona that it was still three hours till supper time and five until bedtime. They eyed us with nervous sorrow. They found some readers' digests to read while we played go fish on the rug by the stove. A long hour passed and they gave us supper, another hour and they put us to bed. We lay listening to their conversation, which always was perfectly audible because they were both hard of hearing. It seemed then and always to be the elaboration ornamentation of the consensus between them, which was as intricate and well-tended as a termite castle. A pity, a pity, a pity. Sylvia wasn't old. She wasn't young. She was old to be looking after children. She was young to pass away. 76? Was she 76? That's not old. No. Not old for her family. I remember her mother, spry as a girl at 88. But Sylvia had a harder life. Much harder. Much harder. Those daughters. How could things have gone so badly? She wondered herself. Anyone would wonder. I know I would. That Helen. Well, what about the youngest daughter, Sylvie? There was a clucking of tongues. At least she doesn't have children. So far as we know, at least. An itinerant. A migrant worker. A drifter. There was a silence. She ought to be told about her mother. She should. If we could figure out where to find her. The ads in the paper might help. But I doubt it. I doubt it. There was another silence. 
those two little girls. How could their mother have left them like that? No note, no note was ever found. It couldn't have been an accident. It wasn't. That poor lady who lent her her car. I feel sorry for her. She blamed herself. Someone got up from the table and put the wood in the fire. They seem to be very nice children. Very quiet. Not as pretty as Helen was. The one has pretty hair. They're not unattractive. Appearance isn't so important. More important for girls, of course. And they'll have to get along on their own. Poor things, poor things. I'm glad they're quiet. The Hartwick Hotel was always so quiet. It was. It certainly was. When they had gone to bed, Lucille and I got up and sat by the window, wrapped in a quilt, and watched the few clouds fly. There was a bright moon in a storm ring, and Lucille made plans to build a moon dial out of snow under our window. The light at the window was strong enough to play cards by, but we could not read. We stayed awake the whole night because Lucille was afraid of her dreams. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So guess what, everybody? Jamie's here. Yes. Very exciting. It's my distinct um, honor to introduce him. Uh, Jamie Van Leeuwen is the Deputy Chief of Staff for Governor Hickenlooper, and he's also the Executive Director of the Global Livingston Institute. Please give a warm welcome to Jamie. Thank you for that gracious introduction, Michael. And you guys, I get the, the um, opportunity to hear a government bureaucrat speak before you can go out and, uh, and mingle and enjoy the rest of your evening. Um, I'm actually the guy who gets, they call me, I've worked with uh, John Hickenlooper for nine years now, and I'm the guy when the governor is unable to be at something, and he would love to be at this tonight, actually. Um, uh, I'm the one who has to call and say to, to Michael, um, the governor can't come, but I can, and then he's supposed to pretend like he's really excited about that. And so um, if the governor had been here, though, uh, I, I can tell you that this, this building is near and dear to his heart. Um, this community is near and dear to his heart. And the fact that you all are, are out here on a Friday night um, celebrating literacy um, is is so much in alignment with what our administration um, uh, really believes is going to change what our community is about. And so um, I, I am so unbelievably blown away by um, uh, the conversations that are happening tonight and the people who are in this room and, and um, being able to attract talent like uh, Michael Henry um, to be able to come to our community and really celebrate literature and, and uh, to be reading um, from a book uh, like Housekeeping, which I actually had the opportunity. I was in Bolivia for a week uh, uh, over the New Year, and so I actually had an opportunity to read the entire book, which is unusual in my life, um, and it's, it's phenomenal, and what a great place for us to be able to have that conversation. Um, it's really consistent. You know, when I look at what you all are talking 
talking about tonight. You know, the governor has really taken and said that our administrative priorities have to be Colorado Reads and our early literacy initiative that you'll, you'll see coming out. We have one book for Colorado where each year we make sure all 70,452, because that's how many four-year-olds there are, have a book. Um, the Colorado Department of Education Strategic Literacy Plan, uh, the community collaboration that's happening and, and really looking at how do we make sure that we have an educated workforce and our governor um, from his days of being mayor knows that an educated workforce in a healthy community means really celebrating not just um, uh, literacy but also the arts and culture um, and having uh, dialogues like this and so uh, you know I think that the book really speaks to uh, the the nature um, uh, that by nature inequality exists and and that that it tells a story um, that that as you address those issues of people who come from inherently um, different capacities and different talents and different resources how do we make sure that everybody has access to 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 the the basic necessities of life um, that we can't change everything but we can address the inequality and resources to develop potential and we know that literacy is one of the best resources in which to do that. Um, um, I also think that uh, um, you know, the governor, uh, a as we start bringing folks together and, and people from different sectors and, and, and different perspectives, we know that there's uh, how important collaboration um, and a joint commitment on the part of communities truly is in terms of how we solve our complex social issues. And the folks who are here tonight are engaged community people who believe strongly in that. You know, the governor, if he had been here, um, one of his quotes that he uses a lot is that collaboration is the new competition. In the end, you can get a lot more done by finding places, the avenues, the opportunities to work together um, than you can even by competing. And, and I think that um, the fact that, again, on a Friday night, um, we're actually competing right now with the music outside, um, which shows you that you can have literature and you can have music and arts and culture all in the same park, um, and that is what really activates and ignites a community. And so, and we all need community. Um, with community, we can empower uh, those around us and future generations to overcome their obstacles. Um, I am so grateful and so touched uh, to be here. And actually, I apologize for the confusion on time, and then I felt particularly guilty when I got here. And Emily um, came and visited me off in my office this week and prepped me on everything that was happening. And then she gave me an awesome book, and so I felt guilty that I was going to get a free book and not have to speak. And so I'm glad that you all made time uh, for me to be here this evening. Um, and really thank you for, for helping us ignite our community. The literacy piece is so unbelievably important. Um, it's been important since, the, uh, since uh, Governor Hickenlooper was, was Mayor Hickenlooper. And when we started this administration, I will tell you that when you look at the numbers and the data, uh, and we know that we live in a state where 30% of our kids in the third grade are not at reading level. And then you go and you look at, we're in a state where 30% of our kids are not graduating from high school. And you start figuring out that that 30%, that, that, that there's an 88% correlation, that if your kid is not reading in the third grade and is not at, at reading level, we know that that kid's uh, proclivity to gra graduate is extremely low. And we know that those kids who don't graduate are the ones that we're the most concerned about when we're trying to solve problems around homelessness, um, when we're trying to solve problems around hunger. And so um, the fact that you all are here um, speaks to your commitment to good literature, um, but it also speaks to your commitment to creating good communities. And so, Michael, thank you for your leadership in this community, and thank you all for being here on a Friday night um, and, and helping us move forward. We really, truly believe as an administration that we can make sure that if we keep coming together as a community that 100% of our kids um, should be at reading level. So thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Jamie. Um, I was, I, you know, I, I did some, um, you know, as you have to do, um, some cyber stalking of the speakers who are going to be here. So um, I, I listened to this really wonderful lecture um, by Jamie, and one of the things he said, the sort of take-home message that I really, that really resonated with me, is that when you're trying to solve complex problems or when you're trying to advocate for the power of arts in our culture, you have to think big. Um, and obviously, you know, just him talking about those seventy-four thousand plus children um, that he's thinking big, and I love that. I think that's really wonderful, and I'm so appreciative of him coming out and, and talking about that. I'm also appreciative of the governor, who always thinks big in terms of arts and culture, um, and I, just, I think it's just great. I mean, when um, Governor Hickenlooper was mayor, he started the One Book, One Denver project, and I don't think we would have the guts to think big, read. Um, sorry, that was a bad pun. Um, <laughs> We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have thought of that if we didn't know that there was a lot of community resources and community interests. So I appreciate that the governor um, started that project. I also appreciate that when he was also mayor in 2008, he awarded Lighthouse the um, Mayor's Award for Excellence in the Arts. So we have this really cool obelisk um, at Lighthouse. So um, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Stories on Stage. Thank you, for all our thank you to all our collaborators. Thank you all for being here. Hopefully I will see you around a lot in the next coming months. Thank you, everyone. Have a great weekend. Um, feel free to stay and hang out and chat. Take care. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.